Well, I love you guys. I've already preached this sermon once, so you're the leftovers. Yeah, either that or the real service, and the first one was the practice. I don't know. If you're noticing, maybe this is a true thing, that the volume is getting a little bit louder in this service, it's because it is. Um, We have such a wide group of people here, age-wise, preference-wise, it's impossible to please everyone and meet everyone's kind of preferences there. So uh, I've decided recently that the 9 o'clock service will maintain that volume level that uh, we're kind of used to around here. And uh, 11 o'clock, uh, we're going to bring it up a little more for you guys. Uh, not as a matter of preferring one or the other, just creating space for people according to your preferences. So just so, just so you know about that, okay? Yeah? All right, good. You know, in the course of your work day, when you get to that place when there's just two or three things left to do and you say, hey, when I get that done, I get to go home? You know that time? And it just sort of lightens your load already. Well, here we are in the Through the Bible series in the book of Zephaniah, which means there are only three more minor prophets to to go through and we've completed the Old Testament. I feel like a guy who's at the end of his work day. I don't know why we save the hardest for last, because these minor prophets are murder, aren't they? Holy mackerel. I think the Lord's been faithful to us, though. The Holy Spirit's just been so generous to us in bringing powerful, powerful truth for our lives out of something that was written for a very specific situation such a long time ago. We're up to the book of Zephaniah. Uh, We're going to... We're going to consider this today, and and most likely, the Lord willing, the last three minor prophets over the course of the next three weeks, and then then I've got a a series of stuff that the Lord's been laying on my heart as we move up toward Easter. One last warning, again, is that since um, on the third week we'll be in Malachi, that if you're planning on intentionally missing the tithing message, make sure you're somewhere else that day, Okay. Because I teach on the subject of tithing once a year, and we never really talk about money after that, so don't say I didn't warn you. Okay. Uh, 53 verses in the book of Zephaniah, 53 verses chopped up into three chapters. Some of the most terrifying prophetic predictions you will ever hear in Zephaniah chapter 1, where it just starts out, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will only have heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth. That's tough, isn't it? That's a tough word. I am 100% certain that Joel Osteen has never preached from that passage. That's a tough, tough word. But it was the word that needed to be heard on that day. It was the word of judgment that the people of Judah needed to hear. And you read through the book of Zephaniah, you get more of it. And then the scenery changes, much like in Habakkuk last week, the scenery changes in the third chapter when there's this prediction, this prophetic prediction about what life is going to be like for the people of God 
not only after the exile, but I believe prophetically after the cross of Christ, that that whole thing is going to change so powerfully from that to this, chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Well, that sounds different than the first couple of verses, right? The Lord has taken away your punishment. How has the Lord taken away our punishment? The cross of Christ. That Jesus took the penalty. That Jesus suffered the punishment that should have been ours. And so, in that way, the Lord has taken away our punishment. As we've talked about before, it wasn't that God just looked the other way on our sin. It's that God provided a perfect atonement for our sin. He didn't take away our punishment just to ignore it. He took away our punishment so that in His holiness, His own wrath, His own perfect, pure wrath, was poured out in the sacrifice of Jesus. But He took away our punishment. We've got to keep that in mind. I think it it helps us to maintain our posture of humility before the Lord when we realize constantly the cost, the price that was paid. Next line in this celebration, he's taken away your punishment. He's turned, he has turned back your enemy. He's turned him back. He's turned back your enemy. He's turned him back. Who is our enemy? Satan. Uh, am I your enemy? Even when you're mad at me, I'm not your enemy. Even after I preach on tithing, I won't be your enemy. I'm still your brother. Satan is our only adversary. He's our only enemy. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came to destroy the works of the enemy. So that's what we're about. But he says, I'm going to do that. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, that day, this day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. I like this next line. Do not let your hands hang limp. You're not living like this. Like just sort of muddling through. Don't let your hands hang limp. Your hands are for something. Your hands are for praising God. Your hands are for serving God. Don't let your hands hang limp in that defeated position. Why, verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He'll quiet you with his love. Parents, have you ever taken one of your kids in your arms and they were all fussing up about something? You said, come here, come here, come here. And just quieted them with your love. You know how that works, right? You just close the distance between yourself and that child You embrace them with the safety of your own arms and you quiet them with your love. The Bible says that the Father wants to quiet us with his love. In the turmoil, in the stuff that you face in your life, close the distance. Close the distance and invite the Lord. Quiet me with your love. He will rejoice over you with singing. (laughs) The Lord sings, it turns out. I I don't know if you can picture the Lord singing. I don't know if you can picture or think about what is it that would make the Lord sing? What would make him sing, right, Marie? It's us. 
as we draw near to him as our father and live in the powerful intimacy of that relationship, it causes, as Jesus said, his joy to be full and for the Lord to sing over us. So we've got 53 verses of this combination of severe judgment and some of the most inspiring, picturesque verses in the Bible. That's what Zephaniah is. By context, you know, as we've talked about context in each one of these series, what's really the bigger picture? Well, I just want to say here we go again, because it's still another prophecy against Jerusalem prior to the fall to the Babylonians. We've heard it before from some of the other minor prophets. It's pretty much the same theme. It's got some different nuances to it. First of all, it says that this happened during during the reign of Josiah. Who was Josiah, you ask? Josiah was one of the kings of Judah. He became a king when he was eight years old because his father was assassinated. So he stepped into the throne at eight years old and was one of the kings of Judah. And you know how when you read through the kings, like some of them are following hard after God and others act like they haven't even been to Sunday school yet? You know what I mean? And, well, the, Josiah was one that in 2 Kings, I think about chapter 22, it says that, that Josiah was one who walked in the ways of his father David. So he, now David wasn't his father, but he was from that heart, that he had a heart for God. So Josiah at eight years old, is made king, and he somehow has a heart for God. One of the things that Josiah did was that he used a bunch of the tax money to restore the temple. The temple had kind of fallen into disrepair because nobody was paying attention to God. And so over the generations before, decades before at least, then the, the temple had fallen into disrepair. Well, Josiah says, we are going to renovate the temple. And so he has this priest named Hilkiah who's going through the temple and he gets into one of the rooms in the temple and he finds something. And he, he finds something, a scroll, and this scroll that's called the Book of the Law. And he's like, what's this? It was functionally the Book of Deuteronomy. And so he takes it to King Josiah and say, look what I found, you, O king, who has a heart for God. Josiah looks at it and in Hebrew, he goes, Oy vey. Where has this been? Why hasn't anybody been paying attention to this? He consults a prophetess named Huldna and says, is this stuff for real? She says, yeah, it's for real. And so Josiah launches a series of reforms to cleanse the temple of all of its idol, idolatrous articles. I mean, they were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping Molech, who would have required them to sacrifice children. All this stuff was in the temple. And so Josiah goes out with all of it, except for the articles of the one true living God, Yahweh. The one true living God. And so he reestablished all of that. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Problem, the people didn't pay that much attention to it. But this was, like a, this was like a chance for them, it seems like. Zephaniah is prophesying during this time, like 641 B.C. and on, as they move toward the 587, 586 B.C. conquest. 
And, and I would just think that Zephaniah is like, oh, this is going to be so good because, because the, the king loves God. But they didn't. They didn't pay attention to him. During the king or the reign of King Josiah, that's what's going on. He talks about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. We first found this phrase in what book? Anybody remember? God help me. I live among a stiff-necked people. Amos, who said that? Up in the Paul, you don't count. You know, it would be impressive just because you're a seminary guy, except that you were in the first service, too. Nice try. It was Amos. Everybody turn and give Paul up in the booth, a prayer, prayer booth, a big hand there. All right. Sit down. All right. The day of the Lord was this concept that the Jewish people had that there was going to come a day when God was going to come back and right all the wrongs and avenge the enemies of Israel, the people of Israel. By this time, Israel's already off in, Samaria, off in, in Nineveh, but captured already. Judah's the only one left. And so that was their thought, that God was going to come back and fix all this. Well, these minor prophets are coming on the scene using this day of the Lord phrase like, oh, he's coming back all right. And he's going to fix things, and you guys are going to be in the path of it. Because you've ignored God. And this was a profound, serious judgment. There was a, this also is worth noting that there was a widespread judgment throughout the region. You know in that first couple of verses where I read that God said, I'm going to destroy the whole earth? Well, the whole earth is a phrase to the, the, the people of the region. You know, that would be the whole earth to them, if you will. And so in the book of Zephaniah, not only is uh, Judah judged, but there are also four other nations. So a total of five nations are judged in the book of Zephaniah. And then, as we've seen in other uh, of the minor prophets, that there's hope for the remnant. That there, there's, you know, God always has a remnant. That no matter how things are going on in the big scene, God has a remnant. God has a people. God has a people. Take heart, beloved. I know things are going really, really badly in some ways in our country. Stand firm. Stand firm. Be men and women of prayer. Be the remnant. Be the remnant. Because there's always hope for the remnant. Okay, so that looks not that different than what we've seen in the other minor prophets, right? So rather than just repeat stuff that I've given before, I prayed, so Lord, where is the hot spot? I went to one place, and I thought maybe the dancing over us, I mean singing over us with rejoicing would be a cool place to go. And the Holy Spirit kept drawing me to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse. And this is the place where I think God really wants to speak to us from the book of Zephaniah, where it says, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai. And then it says, son of so and so and son of so, and it goes on. The son of Cushai. I think we should start right there. I think we should start with the question, who's Cushai? Who is Cushai? It's pretty obvious. It's Zephaniah's father, right, okay? It's right there, okay? It is right there in front of you. 
Cushai is Zephaniah's father. You see how that, I just want you to get that really firmly in your mind before I go on. Very important. Okay, so, well, who's Cushai? What does Cushai mean? Well, Cushai means of or from Cush. Now that makes sense, right? Buckeyes, that makes sense, right? You identify yourself any place in the world by saying, I'm a Buckeye. And they know, sadly. <laughs> Cushai is someone who is of or from Cush. Well, what's your next question? Where's Cush? See, you can do this. This isn't that hard. Cush, Cush, Cush. What do we know about Cush? What do we know? Where is Cush? Ethiopia? Africa? What? Wait a minute. Are you saying that Cush is a part of Africa? So are you saying that someone who is from Cush is an African? So are you saying, I mean, do we dare ask this next question? Was Zephaniah's father black? I can just feel the angst raise in this room. Huh? Among some, I'm not saying among all. Some of you are going, well, why not? And that's what I'm saying. Why not? He's son of Cushai, son of a Cushite. You remember, you remember when Moses got into a spat with his sister Miriam? What was the problem? He took for himself, the Bible says, a Cushite wife. What? M Miriam got so cranked about that that she started gossiping about him and taking him down, and the Lord took her to task. The Lord took her to task and said, took her in private and said, Oh, Miriam, you like white better than dark? Okay, and the Bible says that God gave Miriam leprosy, but it was a leprosy and that her skin was white as snow. You like white better than black? Here you go. And God made his point, eh? I hope so. I hope you've been set free. Some of you were the unfortunate products of some terrible households that taught you to be prejudiced, that taught you to be bigoted in one direction or another. And it's wrong. I break it in the name of Jesus. I set you free from that stuff in the name of Jesus. Zephaniah was the son of Cushai. Well, where did these Cushites come from? That's what I want to know. Well, first time we encounter Cush is he's a grandson of Noah. You remember Noah? Have you got that far yet? So Noah, these people leave the ark. Three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Pretty sure it was Ham that had among his children a son named Cush. How did Ham have a black child? How could that be? Because certainly Noah was white. 
All the pictures say so. Where did the pictures of Noah come from? Let's see. The European church. Huh. We are the product of European expansion, beloved. We as a church today are the product of white European expansion. No matter what your color is, we're the product of sitting in this room right now of white European expansion. The Protestant Reformation came as a result as of, of, of objecting to, rebelling against the European Catholic Church. From that arose in a time when we were colonizing this nation, substantially white people coming for religious freedom, established it on a solid foundation, but found out that the work was pretty hard, so let's go kidnap ourselves from Af our people from Africa. Let's go take them in slavery. Let's own them and make them do the work. It's, does it make your stomach turn a little bit? Does it just make you want to repent for something you never did? All of our pictures, so many of our pictures are, are Caucasian of these Bible people which is so ridiculous if you think about it, right? I mean, let's think about, let's just not even think about Noah. Let's think about Adam and Eve. Let's think about Adam and Eve, the first people. Well, they were white, right? Well, there they are. There they are. I don't know for sure but I've been suspecting this week, maybe they weren't. What? Here's how come I think maybe Adam and Eve weren't white. I think they weren't white because God is smart. Now, if it was your plan to create a functionally hairless mammal and drop them into a garden where the sun never stops shining and put them in there naked. Am I reading the Bible or what? Who Would you put a white guy in there? I'm hurting just thinking about that. Would you put a white guy in there? When I go out on my farm in the summertime, I have to wear a hat couple hours and it's like, oh, this hurts. That's just a hat. I'm definitely not going out naked. He couldn't have been white. Could he? It doesn't even make sense. Adam would have had a sunburn on his head all the time because we know he was bald. We know Adam was that much we know. We know Adam was bald. Because it said he was the first perfect man. God makes some perfect heads and mistakes he covers up with hair, right?
The other exciting thing about Zephaniah 1, verse 1 for me, is found in the name Zephaniah. It starts out, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. And I find pleasure in looking up some of these words and trying to understand them. It's a little mathematical equation in, he, in Hebrew. Harry, why do you have to sit in the front row whenever I'm doing Hebrew stuff, man? All right? Just don't listen for a minute, all right? All right. Hebrew, the word Zephaniah is a combination, compound word, a connection of two words. Now, it's the Lord, which you see that in the Yah on the end, Zephaniah. We've seen that in some of the other prophets, haven't we? Their name often incorporates Elijah, uh, Jeremiah. You know, that Yah is commonly Yah, uh, abbreviation for Yahweh. They didn't really say that whole thing anyway. And then, and then the first part, the prefix, then has some, some other connotation. In this case, it says the, it's the Lord plus secret. So it comes up with a couple of different ways to interpret it well. And I think the one way is that Zephaniah's name meant the Lord is my secret. The Lord's my secret. That as we live in this day of, of peril, the Lord's my secret. Wherever I go, I have the Lord. That no matter what I face, I have the Lord. The Lord's my secret. The Lord is my secret. God resides within me. The Lord is my secret. That I will not face anything that is bigger than the Lord. Because the Lord's my secret. That neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because the Lord is my secret. He's hidden in here. Colossians said that we're, we're hidden, hidden with Christ and God. Hidden. The Lord's my secret. He's alive, living inside of me is my secret. Another way to interpret this, which I also has a great application, is I am the Lord's secret. I'm the Lord's secret. That in the midst of the peril in which he lived, that he was placed there strategically as the Lord's secret weapon. And I think I, I just want to encourage you to know that you also are the Lord's secret weapon. That in the midst of your circumstance, your population, your people, your neighborhood, your work life, the people you encounter, some of them do not know God. And in some cases, you struggle with principalities and such that are of the enemy. And in that situation, you are the Lord's secret weapon. That you've been placed there on purpose. Your life is not an accident. And the more obediently you learn to live your life, the more centered you will be in the Lord's strategic plan for your life. That each step of obedience that you take, no matter how small it may seem, I'm just going to do this because I sense the Lord calling me to do that, that keeps you on the center line. That keeps you strategically in the Lord's plan as the Lord's secret weapon. Sometimes you'll like where that center line goes and sometimes you will not. But strategically placed as the Lord's secret weapon because he has equipped you to do the things that he's called you to do. He has indwelt you with the word of God and dwelt you with the Holy Spirit. He has given you spiritual gifts. You are the body of Christ, the Bible says. And you're sprinkled about in the world according to his perfect plan. Your life is not an accident. Amen. You are a strategic 
secret weapon of the Lord. The Bible says that we are sheep of his pasture, right? So we're sheep. Yeah, we get some of that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We're sheep. The Bible also says that we have been entrusted with the armor of God and that he wants to use us strategically to destroy the works of the enemy. So I found a new poster child for the vineyard. That's God's call on our life right there. That's you. I do have to give Paul a little props, though. He said between services after he saw this one in the first service, he said, I got a name for your guy up there. I said, what is it? He said, Rambo. You know, whether you say I am the Lord or the Lord is my secret or I am the Lord's secret, I just want to I just want to close with some thoughts about tending to that secret place that you have with God. Don't let don't let that slip away. Because who we are in public is a reflection of who we've been in secret. I know there's a lot going on in your life and many many things to Compete for your 168 hours a week, I get that, but there's nothing more important for you than to meet with the Lord, ask him to speak to you through the power of his word, what you do in secret, call out for the issues that are present to you, that are on your heart, every morning, yeah, seven days a week, I get up before the birds do. And I sit in my chair, and the first thing I do, I don't start by praying for people, praying for you all. I start often for the first hour. I pray this little prayer. I say, Lord, I just want you to speak to me. And I just start reading. And He's very generous if we can incline our ears to him. And then after that's done, then I go, okay, now I want to speak with you, please. What's your secret place like? You know, Jesus said this. Jesus said, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's about getting alone with the Lord. And there's lots of good context about the prayer shawl, being in the prayer closet. All that's good. But the point is still the same. It translates through the centuries. Getting alone with God. You cannot imagine the difference you're making by praying that way. It's the only explanation for a place like this. Somebody's praying secret prayers. Put that picture up there with that scripture because it just impressed me this week that all of us are here somehow 
because somebody prayed secret prayers for us. Somebody prayed secret prayers for us. What? Some by name, but some by generation, some by... That there, this lady sat somewhere on one day and somehow prayed. Secret prayers called out that the world would know Jesus. Some people prayed for you secretly by name for years and years and years. Some of them didn't live long enough to see this answer, did they? They would rejoice, but they prayed them anyway. Just praying in that secret place and protecting that secret place and saying that there's nothing more important for me to do than to get with God. That's the longing in your heart. It's a craving. That's the only thing that will satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for that secret place that place that you could call us to where we could find life. Maybe we don't have time to pray for an hour or whatever, Lord. I don't think that's the deal at all. I think that the deal is you want to meet with us for whatever, a minute. God, I just pray that you would drive this truth down into our hearts in ways that would cause us to do it so that we we could pray the secret prayers, never expecting to be known for it, but just always getting that secret reward that you give us of the pleasure of your company. I thank you for those who are in this room who do pray the secret prayers and who rejoice in this, this blessing, and they know. God, I thank you for those who intercede for us and pray for us. Lord, I just pray that you would Use this remaining time here that we have just a few minutes to draw us close to you. Draw us. Just close the distance, Lord. Close the distance.